Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is Wednesday, July the 27th, and as you might notice, Stephen and I are in person, together. We're here in lovely Hudson, Ohio, being annoyed by each other already, but you know, that's okay, because once we're done here, we're gonna have a little dessert because it is National Creme Brulee Day. I am Tom Hollingsworth, your host, and joining me, as always, is my lovely co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show that we are here recording in person together, live. It's good to be here, Tom, and I have to say, any cooking that requires a blowtorch, two thumbs up. Exactly. I mean, some of the best cooking that's ever happened involves a blowtorch and sugar. And speaking of sweet things, we have a lot of great news stories that are headed your way. We've got some executive shakeups and some discussion of chips and a few other things. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. Well, Stephen, uh, we've talked a lot about NetApp on the show in the past, and uh, one of the people who keeps coming up is Anthony Lai. But unfortunately, it's time for him to migrate somewhere else because the head of NetApp Cloud has decided to move on to a new adventure with Palantir. Lai has been instrumental in turning the SS NetApp, that very big ship, in uh, to focus more on cloud by both developing their nascent cloud offerings, but also by making some key strategic acquisitions that will help ensure that the storage giant is going to be able to make products that really resonate with the modern view of IT, which involves data centers that are not on your premises. How successful was Mr. Anthony Lai when it comes to making NetApp a cloud company? Well, how about the fact that they went from making less than a million dollars a year in revenue to now over $500 million in revenue? Uh, man, no word yet on who's gonna be filling his shoes, but Stephen, I have a question for you. Is this gonna be a problem for NetApp and all of their cloud aspirations? Well, it's interesting because, um, as you mentioned, uh, Anthony Lai was really the face of NetApp's cloud ambitions, uh, for the most part. That being said, I think it's important to point out that the entire company has cloud uh, permeating through it. And NetApp actually has a lot of cloud outside Anthony Lai's cloud uh, division. I previously talked about this division as a sidecar. The idea being that uh, one of the challenges for any company is how do you evolve the company into a new market without undermining your current products, especially when you're talking about going from a CapEx product to an OpEx product from on-premises to the cloud. It's a big challenge. And, and when you're going, talking about going from storage to, well, not storage, uh, Lai was really the one responsible for the strategy of NetApp over the last few years, and he's the one who picked all of these, uh, well, gave the thumbs up on at least, for all of these really impressive acquisitions that the company has made. But that being said, what I'm hearing from my friends in the analyst community is that, uh, frankly, NetApp being a big business had set some pretty ambitious goals for Lai to meet on a financial basis, and even though Obviously, revenue did increase, and the company, you know, moved into these new markets. Uh, the income just wasn't matching the expectations, and so it was time for him to go. I feel like, honestly, this is sort of how business works. I feel like it's honestly kind of too bad that they didn't continue uh, under his management. But, you know, I guess I got it. If you're not meeting your targets, then you're not meeting your targets, and that's how it is. Um, I don't know if anybody could have met those targets, but... Eh. Anyway, uh, the thing that I'm going to keep an eye out for as somebody who watches NetApp closely and the cloud market closely is to see how NetApp can take this really, really great foundation 
of acquisitions and new technology and non-storage technology and keep that going. Because if that sidecar kind of becomes part of the motorcycle, that's going to be really hard to maintain. Whereas if they're able to allow that cloud business to continue to develop and grow on its own, uh, pretty soon the sidecar could kind of take over propulsion from the main NetApp and that would be best for everybody. So we'll see how this happens. But um, in the meantime, I do wish Anthony Lai the best at uh, Palantir. Maybe he can take over Minas Tirith or uh, Sirith Ungol. We'll see. Hey, Tom, you got a second? Apparently Meta doesn't. Everyone is probably familiar with the concept of a leap year every four years, the habit of adding one more day in February to make the calendar work better. In recent years, we've, we've also started adding an uh, occasional leap second to the year to keep time measurements accurate since it's not exactly a quarter of a day that we need. This additional second on December 31st has happened a couple of times in recent memory, including 2015 and 2016, and it caused issues for computer systems both times. There's already a plan from the ITU to discuss removing the leap second next year because it's kind of not needed. But never one to wait. Meta, the parent company of Facebook, announced that they think the extra second is a bad idea and they want it to go. The concept of their engineers discussed is instead is what's called smearing, where the extra second is sped across 17 hours on December 31st in order to avoid adding an extra second. No worry, there's no word on whether this smearing concept would allow them to more easily access a locked out data center. But uh, Tom, can you take a second and explain this to us? I can. So the problem is, is that leap years are fairly regular. And that is one thing that computer systems love is predictability. However, leap years are actually not as predictable as you might think because it turns out that everyone here knows that every four years is a leap year, except for the beginning of a new like century. So like 1900 was not a leap year, but 2000 was. 2100 will not be a leap year. It's, you have to go back. It's like trying to figure out when Easter falls, really. Um, and it actually caused problems back in the year 2000 on top of everything else that went wrong. A lot of computer systems were not expecting 2000 to be a leap year because they had been programmed with logic that said, if it's the beginning of a new century, it won't be a leap year, except when it is. And the other problem is, is that leap seconds are not always like, we don't know that we're going to need a leap second at the beginning of every year. We find out later that it's like, oh yeah, we've accumulated enough microseconds in the slowing of the Earth's rotation, blah, 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 we need a leap second. So how do you program a computer system in October to say, hey, December 31st is going to be 3601 seconds longer in that last you know, hour? And the computer systems freak out. I mean, Cloudflare got hit by it. A bunch of other companies just you know, fell apart because there was one extra second. I get the idea. And the fact that the ITU is already talking about it means that we all have figured out that this is a good idea, that maybe we need to do away with it. However, in keeping with the fact that nothing good ever comes out of meta, I don't like this idea of smearing, even though I'm almost positive that that's what they're going to end up doing. It. Because what they're effectively saying is, is that we're going to make every second for 17 hours just slightly longer so that we don't have to have an extra second. So if you thought that the last day of the year is dragging on forever, it actually will be for about 17 hours. And the other problem is, and just so you know, smearing is actually a concept that's been pioneered by Google and they figured it out. It's way more complicated than just tagging an extra second onto the end of the day. But of course, because that makes everything consistent and predictable, that's why they're championing it. 
Do I think that the IT is probably going to make the decision to do away with a leap second? Absolutely. Should they listen to Meta? Absolutely not. But, you know, that's just my opinion. Maybe if Meta would uh, maybe pioneer ways to uh, get into locked out data centers or sell fewer ads or quit stealing all my personal information, I might be more willing to listen to them. All right, Stephen, just like a good croissant, my, uh, Micron has decided that they've built a new treat around a ton of layers. Uh, the storage maker has announced that they have a new 232-layer NAND flash offering that is the first in the industry to cross the 200-layer boundary. Now, the reported specs on the unit are pretty impressive. I saw the throughput numbers, and they were mind-blowing. Um, but the real area that is crazy is in the den aerial density of those chips. you got to think about how much you can pack into a, a layer cake that's 232 layers. Where is that real-world impact going to be felt? Well, it's going to be felt in really small things like portable video game consoles and mobile phones because now they have access to a lot more flash that they would have been able to have otherwise. And Micron is the first to beat other companies like Samsung out of the gate because Samsung is trying to get their product out before the end of the year. Um, Steven, you're the storage expert. Is stacking NAND like this going to lead to better performance or is it going to lead to bigger problems if it eventually fails? Yeah, this is um, great news uh, from Micron. Uh, well done, uh, folks. You, you, did a, you did a good one here. Um, it's important to think of a NAND chip as basically a little skyscraper. And just like a skyscraper, uh, you can fit as many people into the apartments as you can fit. Uh, the easiest way to pack more people onto uh, a city block is to build higher, right? That's pretty much what Micron is doing. So imagine instead of a 232-layer uh, NAND chip, imagine we're talking about a 232-story building. Well, that's kind of terrifying, but uh, imagine it anyway. Uh, a 232-story apartment building. And each of those apartments still holds the same number of people. So you can imagine that uh, going from 176 stories to 232 stories is really going to improve things. But you can also imagine that there might be some trouble here, right? Maybe that building's going to use more power. Maybe that building's uh, going to take a longer time. Maybe they're going to be like a lot of people waiting for the elevators and the stairs uh, all the time. Well, the cool thing that Micron did here, too, is not only did they increase the number of layers, uh, they also increased the number of access lanes or planes here. So imagine uh, this new building has a whole bunch more elevator banks than before. They made it more efficient as well. Uh, they've got a lower voltage support, uh, you know, again, stretching my metaphor, uh, suddenly all the, all the houses have, you know, special super efficient appliances and low voltage light bulbs and, and things like that. And, and in the, the net result is that they've got a uh, device here that stores a lot more data, a lot more efficiently on uh, a lot less power. Everything is improved. Performance is improved. Uh, capacity is improved. And frankly, uh, the, the fact that the chip uses lower voltage means that it's going to be much better for the next generation of portable devices. Honestly, this thing is great. It's way out ahead of the industry, and uh, Micron did a really, really nice job here. In fact, I am hearing rumors from my friends in the analyst community that they may have already scored some uh, pretty notable wins for this technology uh, that they really can't talk about, and neither can anyone else. So uh, if that's the case, I just can't wait to be able to tell you more about that. Tom, remember a couple of weeks ago when Canada went offline? The culprit was Rogers Communications, one of the biggest providers of service in America's hat, or the Great White North. Uh, they've released a statement about what happened and said that they're going to do better. I'm sure they apologized as well. 
Uh, per CEO Toter, uh, Tony Staffieri, the ultimate cause of the issue was a configuration uh, error that forced too much traffic through the core routers. The result was approximately half of Canada's use internet users being forced offline, and since Rogers also provides internet service and mobile phone coverage and even landline phone coverage, I don't know, um, basically everybody was offline. Rogers had a lot of egg on their face and are spending a lot to fix the issues. They'll spend about $10 billion loonies, uh, Canuck bucks, uh, over the next uh, three years to fix the current issues and provide uh, oversight to make sure that it never happens again. Tom, is it never going to happen again? No. Okay. And that's the funny thing about this is that, you know, we had a hard time trying to figure this out down here in the, in the southern part of the North American continent. So let me give you an example. Verizon just went offline. What would that impact? Well, obviously it would impact mobile phone service. It would impact internet uh, capabilities. You know, little things like there were a whole bunch of places that couldn't take credit card payments because their little POS systems couldn't reach the internet. That was a massive problem because what's the first thing you do when you don't have internet at home? I'm going to go grab a coffee. Well, now you can't pay for it. And the few people who did have connectivity, maybe their local loop was working just fine. They could get out of their house to their local ISP servers or whatever. Oh, Rogers leases the circuit that goes to this other place, like in British Columbia, that then goes down to Washington. And oh, great, now we've got a problem. Here's the issue. Um, Rogers did a really terrible job of trying to cover for the fact that their engineers screwed up. Like, we've seen, like, some of the after-action reports, not from Rogers, but from other people. Uh, shout out to Cloudflare for taking a look at this and going, here's what we've seen and here's what we think would have caused it if we'd have been the ones to do it. Um, like, Rogers sent out an email to all the other Canadian ISPs about two hours into this going, hey, have you guys seen any, uh, any uh, signs of a cyber attack? Please? Anywhere? Anyone? No, it really did turn out that someone pushed a configuration change that caused a whole bunch of problems. And anybody who's ever worked on a network knows what that looks like. All of a sudden, at like 3.01 a.m., everything goes offline. Hmm, that looks like a cyber attack. Sure, yeah, it does. So now what they've said is, well, we're going to go back and we're going to do a lot more. We're going to hire people to do an audit and then we're going to put all these controls in place. We're going to spend a lot of money to buy things. And nowhere in there did we say we're going to train people to do things better or we're going to put redundancies in place or we're, I don't know, going to stop using agile development methods that allow us to push change into production without a proper code review or anything like that. I'm sure it's probably in there somewhere. But... Maybe what you need to do is stop monkeying with things because that's the nature of a network engineer. By the way, go ask your regular network engineer in your organization if they're comfortable pushing changes without doing any kind of desk checking or having a change window or a advisory control board and see how fast their face puckers up and they start shaking their head. I don't think this is going to stop the next big outage from Rogers anytime. It might restore a little bit of faith, but I would argue that maybe Rogers didn't have a lot of faith to start with. Um, Stephen, we're going to go back to chips real quick because uh, the SK Group, which you may know as the South Korean chip juggernaut, has announced that they are making a big investment in chip making in the United States. Um, they've previously gobbled up quite a few lines of business from some U.S. companies, including Intel, but they've unveiled plans to sink about $15 billion into chip research, and they're adding about $7 billion into battery develop and charging station tech. So, you know, basically, they're not just building chips, but they're building other future-looking uh, technologies. Um, this, of course, comes as the U.S. Congress is 
on the cusp of finalizing the CHIPS Act. We, you know, it's passed the Senate. We're trying to figure out if we can get it through all the other things that needs to be done and signed into law. Now, the reason why this is such a big deal is because the U.S. government is putting up a huge pot of money to encourage chip manufacturers to bring some of that facility onshore. Uh, companies like Intel and Samsung are already looking to take advantage of this because the U.S. doesn't want to get caught out when there's another supply chain disruption like we've been having over the last year and creating chip shortages that they don't control because all the fabs are overseas. The SK Group package is looking to produce maybe about around 11,000 jobs by the time that everything is finally finished over in 2025, just a few years from now. Um, Stephen, the question that I have is, is, is SK Group going to be able to get in on all of this hot chips action, or are they going to be making a play to try to force this bill through Congress to maybe like get a little bit on the backside? Yeah, I, I'm really not sure if this is going to be part of the CHIPS Act funding or not. But I will say that there's actually a really interesting angle here. So one of the uh, aspects of the Intel deal, which is probably the highest profile part of the CHIPS Act, uh, that would be the Ohio fab that they're building, where they're going to be building a, uh, one of the biggest fabs, uh, most advanced fabs in the world in, uh, near Columbus, Ohio. Uh, one of the aspects of that that has gone uh, fairly unreported is the fact that that is really just about uh, basically use, making the wafers, making the chips themselves. But all of those chips would then have to be sent overseas for packaging. In fact, they would be, have to be sent to China for packaging, which, you know, kind of causes some issues. Now, Intel has said that they may get into packaging there as well, but that's not part of the current plan that I've heard. And so the question was, how exactly is this going to make the U.S. more um, self-reliant on chips if all of the chips have to be shipped to China and then shipped back to the U.S. before they can be used? So it's important to understand that what's being announced here from SK is a packaging operation in the U.S. Now does it make sense? I think it does. Essentially, SK, which has partnered historically with Intel, including um, the joint venture that produced NAND flash that's now called Solidime, um, SK and Intel are, are pretty good friends, and if SK can build a packaging operation here in the U.S. that would save the need to ship all of the output from all these fabs, and not, not just Intel, of course, all these other fabs overseas and then back, it would improve the resiliency of the supply chain overall, and it would also appeal to the kind of people who are writing those big checks in all these different states. So I think that this is really, really, really a good thing for SK. It's probably a good thing for the industry overall. And I think that it's going to be pretty attractive uh, when uh, looked upon by representatives in various states. So uh, basically, you can bet that this operation is going to go to another state where a powerful senator has uh, his hands on some money. Um, and I'm going to go with a uh, Republican-led state because they've been the ones that are pushing back a little bit on spending all this money. So, I, I, yeah, this is all politics, but it's also good for the industry. Well, speaking of the industry, Stephen, there's a little bit of a closer look story that we wanted to take a look at this week. And it actually does involve a lot of uh, chips, but it's maybe more a little more forward-looking stuff. Because we have been talking a lot over the last few months during the rundown about the shortage of integrated circuits and how people are trying to ramp up the production capacity in order to be able to meet these shortfalls. 
but it looks like there's probably more to this story that we're not really seeing right now as the reports start to come out of Taiwan suggesting that the production capacity for mature integrated circuits is exceeding demand and price reductions are on the horizon. Companies like SMIC in mainland China and some of the smaller firms in Taiwan not named TSMC are making price reductions about 10% as the demand is starting to drop. Given the fact that <coughs> Excuse me. Given the fact that the CHIPS Act recently just passed in the United States and companies are starting to make huge investments, see also TSMC, what's exactly going on here, Stephen? Why are some of these companies dropping all of their prices? Yeah, this is an interesting aspect, too. So as we just talked about, um, the CHIPS Act passed uh, the U.S. Uh, Senate. Uh, there's a lot of money being poured into this uh, for companies like Intel, but also Samsung, uh, TSMC, uh, SK Group, to build more and more chip manufacturing capability in the United States and in Europe. And yet, at the same time, a lot of the reason for this has been basically this shortage of, of chips. In fact, much of the shortage of global uh, IC supply has been driven in the, uh, not the cutting edge chips, but sort of the peripheral chips. So for example, if you've heard news stories about uh, you know, Ford having to sit uh, pickup trucks on the field while they're waiting for the electronics or uh, other automakers cutting uh, features from their cars because they don't have a power supply chip or a, a microcontroller or something, uh, all of that that's not really related to these cutting edge, you know, 10 and smaller nanometer processes. That's all related to more mature processes and generally smaller companies that are out there producing these chips on lower end uh, devices. Well, that was very, very constrained and it was constrained for a lot of reasons, things like fires and droughts and contamination and all sorts of things in addition to the uh, really uh, rapacious global demand for integrated circuits lately because frankly there's chips in everything. Um, but that being said, uh, there does come a time when the global economy impacts the, the need for integrated circuits. And frankly, that's what's been happening here lately. I mean, if you think about the, uh, the war uh, that's happening in Ukraine, if you think about the global pandemic, if you think about uh, you know, disruptions to travel, uh, disruptions to the global economy, I mean, basically we're kind of looking at maybe a global recession right now. Uh, you can see that that might cause uh, companies to sort of delay purchases, to think, rethink their purchasing strategy. Maybe they're not gonna build as many whatevers. Um, and all of that impacts these um, uh, older process nodes more than it might the most advanced things. Because there's always going to be someone who wants the iPhone 14 or the latest camera or the latest uh, computer. And there's always going to be demand for things like GPUs and inference engines and CPUs and everything. And all of those things are going to be put on these brand new high-end process nodes. But at the same time, all that stuff kind of pulls along all these other ICs, and, and that's a totally different market. So what I think we're seeing here is basically the natural thing that happens in a very competitive market, in that you've got a, you know, a dozen companies you've never heard of out there producing this stuff. And I was actually just looking to see the, uh, 
the names of some of these companies because they won't ring a bell. So we have SMIC, which is maybe the most famous one in China. We also have Huahong, uh, Jinghei, uh, Hei Ship in China, and, and, and over in, tai in Taiwan, uh, we've got companies like Connected Power and Liji Power. These are companies that are making just, you know, support chips. And this is what happens in the industry. Like there's supply and there's demand and the supply goes up and demand goes, goes down and, and, and things happen. And I think that that's what we're seeing here. So I wouldn't read too much into this uh, with regard to the overall situation. But what I would say is that this is really good news for companies like Ford and Tesla and Volkswagen and, you know, that are out there that are needing just tons and tons of little support chips because it sounds like they're actually going to be able to get them. You know who reads too much into this is the analysts because in the linked article that we have here, one of the issues that it was coming up is that the analysts are starting to look into their crystal ball to predict um, whether or not they're going to have a job next week. And they're starting to say things like, well, you know, we think that the overall trend line for things like memory manufacturers is going to continue to be reduced over the next quarter. And what does that sound like to you? It sounds like someone saying that the companies who are making stuff are going to start making less stuff. And anyone who reads that who's not an investor is going to go, well, if they're making less stuff, it means I need to go out and buy more now because there may not be stuff available because they've just lived through a chip shortage. So they're going to drive demand, which is going to actually reduce the amount of things that are available because people are going to have to go out and buy a ton more chips. I mean, we've already seen it in the way that a lot of networking companies and other places have started to have to pre-purchase the support chips that go into some of their devices in order to make sure that they have them on hand when they need to do that. Well, the problem is, is that, as we've talked about in previous months in the rundown, the pull-through for some companies where, well, if I'm going to have to buy my new Cisco switches, uh, eventually I might as well buy them now while they're in stock because it will be six more months before they ship anyway. That's causing this weird gap in the supply chain where right now we have a glut of these chips because all the people who were going to buy them have already bought them. So I'm not going to need them for three more months because everybody's already purchased the things they're going to get. So now they're flooding the market with more demand or more supply than there is demand, and that's going to cause them to cut prices. And what comes after a price cut? If nobody's still buying them, it's a production cut, which is one of the things that caused us to get into trouble in the first place. We couldn't ramp up production fast enough to meet the demand. So while I'm not saying that the sky is falling yet, what I'm saying is please watch out for the chicken littles running around whose job it is is to predict that the sky might be lower next week than it might otherwise be and you should definitely pay attention to what I'm saying because what they'll actually end up causing is the kind of demand crunch that we have seen and it may not end up being as good for those other companies like Ford and Tesla and anybody else who makes like you know basic IC type environment or products than it otherwise would be I'm not saying that's going to happen I'm not an analyst I'm just saying that it could and I think ultimately where the answer comes is exactly what we're seeing here is, is, is what is the customer demand, what is the production capacity, and how does that demand affect pricing? And that ultimately is where the answer is going to come from here in, uh, in IC pro uh, production, but, but in every other part of the market.
So Tom, I want to take a look here at some of the events that are coming up in the weeks ahead. And I know you've got a pretty exciting one coming up here soon. That's right. Next week, we're going to be doing Networking Field Day Service Provider, the second version of our event that's focused on network networking technology that is behind the wall, where the Ethernet goes out of your house. Um, we're going to be hearing from companies like Kentic. We're also going to be giving some special community presentations talking about some of the cool stuff that we've been working on and even a couple of discussion panels about some of the exciting new protocols that might be in the future of trying to fix some of the problems we've been talking about here on the rundown. You know, like things like BGP hijacking and DNS problems. So make sure you tune in. We're going to be doing that next week on August 3rd and 4th. You can find out more details on our website, techfieldday.com. You can get a lineup of the delegates, lineup of the presenting companies, and find out when those the things that we're going to be talking about are happening so you can tune in. Stephen, at the end of August, we've got something coming up that's super exciting as well. Yeah, we're very happy to be going back to San Francisco for our friends at VMware. Uh, it's no longer called VMworld. It's now called VMware Explore. But we will be there. I will be there as an analyst, actually. And uh, we're joining uh, our friends at uh, VM Underground, V Brown Bag, uh, the CTO Advisor, and that's right, Tech Field Day Extra. So keep an eye out on Monday, uh, August 29th, for Tech Field Day Extra at VMware Explore. And of course, do uh, tune in for all of our coverage of the whole event. And if you're going to be in San Francisco for VMware Explore, shoot me a line. That'll just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in. Remember that we are every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time, semi-live, recorded live with you, where we bring you the news of the week. If you uh, like to subscribe to us on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash video, we sincerely appreciate it. Make sure you give us a like. Uh, share the video with your friends. If you prefer to listen to us, maybe when you're driving into work or out on your run, you can digest this in your favorite podcast application of choice. Just search for the Gestalt IT Rundown. We promise to keep you chuckling the whole way on that mile that you're running. Um, if you have a news story that you'd like to share with us, something you think that's worthy of being covered, make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT and use the hashtag Rundown. We will be back next week in our own separate availability zones in case of uh, problems, and that way uh, you know, we can bring you the great news that comes along with Stephen trying to beat me up. Um, and if you're going to have a creme brulee for lunch because it is National Creme Brulee, remember that you need something uh, to help with the digestif of it. Um, it's National Scotch Day, so uh, maybe that'll go well with it. Who knows? Um, but we'll be back next week, so make sure you tune in. For Stephen Foskett, uh, for the rest of our Gestalt IT crew and our wonderful video crew sitting just behind the cameras today, Andrew and Corey, thank you all very much. We'll be back next week, so take care and have an amazing week.